0: You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. In episode 18 of this podcast, I spoke with John Parker, the technical director of the Arboricultural Association in the UK about urban forestry in the 21st century. In this episode, I wanted to get him back on the show to speak about another topic that he's passionate about, which is trees in mythology. G'day, John. Welcome back to the show, mate.
1: Thank you very much. It's very nice to be back. Thank you for inviting me.
0: No worries. Where do you want to start?
1: Okay, I guess, so I'm an Arbora culturalist. you know, I, I, I like my trees and I like all aspects of trees, but one of the main things that's always fascinated me is, is the relationship between trees and people and particularly how that is reflected in mythology and religion and and in culture and folklore, and some of the kind of commonalities between stories or between religious beliefs involving trees all around the world. And it's just quite interesting when you start digging into how trees appear in in mythology, there are some real recognisable elements from one culture to the next. And it's just a really interesting thing. So I kind of started myself wondering a couple of years ago, you know, why is that? Why is it that there's this relationship between people and trees? And how has that been manifested through time? And then how is it manifested now, really? So that's been a sort of personal project for the last few years of, of doing as, of, as much reading as I can, and a bit of writing here and there to try and, uh, to try and find out some of the answers.
0: So what you're saying is, in people's minds throughout different cultures, there are some similarities with what the connections are that they're drawing for trees within different cultures.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think wherever you see in history, wherever there's been people and trees in close proximity to each other, to a greater or lesser degree, those people have venerated those trees uh, in some way. And that's kind of consistent across the world. And, and there's various reasons for that, I think. A couple that I'd offer, I suppose. One is a quite an obvious one in, in that for our you know, ancient ancestors particularly, trees were the providers trees kind of gave them everything they needed they offered the, the shelter and the food and, and the medicine and the materials that they needed to live their lives and you know again when, when you look across the world whatever the thing is that people really depend on people tend to start worshipping it in some way whether it's the sun or water or in this case trees so there's that sort of direct link of a dependency i suppose from people on trees that i think probably sits at the heart of a lot of the, the veneration for them
0: Mm. And do you think that the fact that part of the tree is seen and part of the tree is unseen sort of plays into that mystical element? You know, we've got the roots under the ground that you can't see.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's a a perfect segue onto the next bit, really, because the the next idea really of why they might have taken this important role in people's lives across the world is this idea of trees as a sacred bridge, really, between different worlds. So, as you say, you've got your, your roots down in the ground, you've got the stem uh, in that sort of an hour level, and then you've got the canopy up in the sky. And when you have civilizations and societies that start looking at hell as being somewhere that's down below the ground and heaven that's somewhere up in the sky, the tree is the sort of link between those things. And you know, maybe one of the best known examples is uh, Idraziel, the, the Norse World tree, which uh, supposedly linked together the nine worlds of Norse mythology and uh, and held up the sky itself. But you've got examples in the sort of pre-columbian uh, mesoamerica as well you've got the indigenous tribes in north america uh, who have a, a world tree in many of their belief systems as well you've got the chinese tree of life uh, the hindu world tree all over the world in many many different cultures there's the tree is a symbol of a sort of an axis mundi a world pillar that links together the different planes of reality in which we exist mm,
0: that makes a lot of sense
1: so that's Really interesting, I think, that you see this motif across across time and across uh, the world. One of the reasons for it, really, is this idea of trees being such sort of long-lived organisms. And again, looking back particularly to to ancient peoples, many tree species would have seemed to them to be immortal. They, they'd assume that they were immortal if you've got a tree like the yew, which is one of our most sort of sacred trees in, in Europe and, and here in the UK. In an average human lifespan, the U would not change. the The growth of a U is imperceptible to a forty, fifty hmm. year human lifespan. It would have always been the same. Your 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 parents would have known that tree. Their parents would have known that tree. And before anything was uh, written down, before photographs, before even sort of you know accurate paintings, it would just have been assumed that these trees were absolutely immortal. And for a tree like the, the yew, which is, you know, entirely poisonous other, other than the berries, there's also a sort of life and death kind of thing going on there. There's obviously the, the whole resurrection question around trees, you know, for, for ancient peoples, trees are pretty cool. They die every <laughs> year and then they come back to life again. You know, if you, if you wish hard enough and you pray hard enough and you do all the right things, then these trees come back to life again. You know, that's, a, that's amazing. That, that must have had such an incredible impact on, on, on our ancestors. And trees, again, were at the heart of that. So I think this, all of these things together and, and probably many more account for why there is this consistency in tree veneration throughout history, throughout the world.
0: So how did cultures that didn't believe in a hell sort of view the root zone differently to cultures that do believe in an underground hell?
1: Oh, well, that's a really good question that I've not, I've not been able to properly explore yet. I like, I like the question though. Maybe we can learn something about root damage and compaction in modern societies based on their, their local <laughs> religious beliefs. I, I don't know is the answer, but what, what you see it in, in many cases, and this doesn't really answer the question, but I'm just going to, just going to swerve it anyway. There, in terms of the roots, you often find that there is some kind of monster down there so in the roots there'll be maybe a dragon or a serpent or some kind of great worm or something and that's what lurks around in the root system and then up in the crown or the canopy you'll have your sort of your local you know best bird you'll have your your falcon or your your eagle or whatever it may be sits in the top mm. and again in, in norse mythology you've got the, the squirrel that runs up and down the stem of the tree sending messages from from the dragon to the bird and, and that keeps flagging up up again throughout this mythology this this good thing up in the top and a bad thing down mm. at the bottom so it might even transcend the idea of heaven and hell it might simply be that i guess what kind of makes sense up in the sky it's bright it's light it's airy it's sunny you can see everything down under the grounds well you know who who really knows what goes on down there we don't understand what goes on under a tree now let alone 20 30, 000 years ago
0: mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. The contrast between the air and the sunlight up in the top, and then you've got the dense, dark, cold soil. And that representation does make a lot of sense. It kind of reminds me of some of the Jungian ideas that I'm casually interested in. So there's this idea of the unconscious, the unseen sort of part of the mind. And that's where the dragons lurk because that's the part of your mind that you can't see and it sort of rears itself up. You know, maybe you have a car crash and then you just suddenly get angry and this monster comes up out of your the unconscious part of you it's kind of is reminding me a lot of that
1: yeah yeah it's sort of the, the yin and yang kind of thing isn't it it's the there's the the two halves of the tree one is in the in the light and one is in the darkness i guess that's maybe an oversimplification i don't know but it's uh, it's an interesting concept i think
0: i think it's very interesting so how do the branches sort of relate to family like that's something i think about you know the tree of life you know, you can trace family lines back down the branch, and that works with sort of evolution as well. You know, you can follow family groups and stuff like that down to the epithet and um, right back down to, you know, monocots, dicots, right down, back down to when they branched off to gymnosperms. How do the branches sort of relate to mythology?
1: Well, I mean, there's quite an interesting example of the, the different parts of the tree representing different things in, in the Hindu world tree or the tree of life where – Uh, The the banyan represents the the three lords of cosmic creation. So you've got Lord Vishnu as the bark, you've got Brahma as the roots, and Shiva as the branches. And collectively, the tree represents life and fertility. And when they're taken in their tree forms, the, the lords of cosmic creation sort of unite the earth and the heavens. So you you've got all the different parts of the tree all doing different things and and I guess maybe that'll that'll vary from one culture and society to another but it's 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 not a coincidence I guess that you know a tree is the motif used when you're describing your family when you're describing uh you know obviously it's, it's handy because the it branches off in a nice convenient way that you can mark things down on but just it just in the very term family tree it tells you something about where we put trees <laughs> in our society
0: mm I guess what we were talking about before the interview sort of started makes a lot of sense there, or it sort of reminds me of what we were saying that sometimes these genetic i guess principles can be used as a metaphor for lots of other things, and I think people have obviously been doing that for a very long time now
1: yeah definitely well and and that's partly where I suppose the interest of how those ancient beliefs and how they evolve through the different religious systems that we know now and and where they kind of show up again and where we can see similarities between the belief systems now and the ancient belief systems as well. And a lot of the tree folklore, at least the sort of the ghost of that tree worship is still present uh, around about the place, I think. And and that's also really interesting to see and part of a much bigger conversation really, but it's a very interesting to see how that's evolved.
0: Do you think that people were always being literal when they were worshiping trees or do you think that that, tree is a symbol for something else? Or what do you think is going on there?
1: Yeah, well, there's there's different ideas about this as well. You know, you've got the direct tree worship. There were certainly cases when it was thought that the tree itself was the god, or the tree itself was the sacred thing, and it was worshipped, you know, a specific tree worship for that specific reason. But then you've also got the whole phenomenon of, of tree spirits. So the tree is being the home of a spirit. So the thing you're worshipping isn't necessarily the tree or or the thing you're venerating. It's not necessarily the tree. It's the thing that dwells within it. And uh, there's a wonderful book by James Frazier, The Golden Bough. And Frazier suggests that the the evolution of the belief system from worshipping the tree directly to worshipping the tree spirits that live there that that's the moment at which animism develops into polytheism. Because if, mm. if you're if you're worshiping the, if you're venerating the tree as a sacred being, there's no kind of way around that. You can't cut that tree down. If the tree dies, you're in a lot mm. of trouble. You're worshiping the tree. But if that tree is just where a spirit might decide to live, then that's kind of a bit easier then, because you can then bargain with the spirit, you can create a whole system of belief whereby you say prayers and you offer you know, offerings, and then the spirit will leave, and then you can cut the tree down. And you know, there's <laughs> you, you see that all over the place as well. I think in in um, until not that long ago in uh, many countries, but Austria is one example that I've read about. Apologies would always be offered to the spirits prior to uh, cutting a tree down. So, and I think actually that's uh, in uh, an Australian belief as well, and in parts of India where you'd apologise mm-hmm. to a tree before you cut it down because you're giving the spirit sort of opportunity to move away and that obviously makes it a bit easier if you want to start cutting down trees that your ancestors thought were sacred.
0: <laughs>
1: and you've got you've got tree spirits, again, all over the world. Obviously, there's the nymphs and the dryads, the ancient Greece, some of the best-known ones. You've got uh, similar spirits in Finland, in Japan. One of my favourites in, in Thai folklore, it's uh, the, the Nan- Nantangi. It's a, a female ghost who haunts the wild banana trees, and she's a, a beautiful, green-skinned young woman and she floats just a little bit off the ground. And she's often connected to, to one of the trees with some sort of umbilical cord. And uh, she'll sort of lure young men into the forest. And if you cut down one of the trees that is occupied by by her, then uh, that would be incredibly bad luck for you indeed. So there's loads of these tree spirit myths around as well. And again, there's quite a lot of similarities between some of them.
0: So this particular tree spirit that you're talking about now, what was she called?
1: I'm going to say Nangtani. Nangtani. That's, that's the pronunciation that I'm going for. N-A-N-G-T-A-N-I. <laughs> I apologize to all Thai people for me butchering your language. <laughs> so that's, I mean, there's just, honestly, there, we're sort of, I know, we're kind of jumping around a bit, I know, but like I, creation myths, the number of, you know, all, all, uh, all religions have some form of creation myth, and uh, an awful lot of those involve trees. And again, when you start reading through those, the, the similarities jump out at you. You've got the the Sam people in South Africa. Um, They have got a belief that all life used to exist below the ground until the creator God broke through to the surface. Uh, Then the first thing he created was an enormous tree. The branches went around the world and then all of the people under the ground could then come up through this tree up to the world to sort of freedom. There's a very similar, the uh, Zappa Stella 5 tablet from Mesoamerica. Very, very similar uh, in Mexico. I think that one is now. Very similar story represented there. You've got um, people, the Zuni people in New Mexico, also have a very similar situation. People live under the ground. Their creator god leads them up through a tree into the daylight. You've got direct people actually being created from trees. So, in you know, the Celts believe that that man was well. There's a bit of a disagreement sometimes as which trees they're referring to, but in one version, the Celts believe that man was created from the older woman was created from the Rowan. In the Norse creation myth odin uh, created man and woman from an ash and an elm and interestingly uh, perhaps their first humans were called ask and embler named after ash and elm but also quite similar to adam and eve some might say if they were looking to be mm. controversial so it's all over the place again direct creation uh, you know the Kikuyu in kenya which is the people you know the children of the huge sycamore is how their name translates and their people were produced from the branches of a great tree, there's there's an awful lot of examples of it. And again, it's it's just very interesting to see why those myths and ideas have been so consistent around the world.
0: Yeah, it's funny you kind of saying those things. I, I can go off a lot of different branches of what you were just saying. So I guess some of the ideas that I was thinking of when you were saying that was that quite literally we kind of, or at least metaphorically, we kind of are the branches on a tree as we were just saying like the family tree there yeah and um another thing as well is that my understanding of biology is that plants were very early on in the piece and they did actually make way for potential human beings eventually once all the conditions were right
1: yeah well you know we we need they a lot more than they need us <laughs> <laughs> i i think what's what's also feel free to rein me in and actually ask me, you know, if you if you want to direct it somewhere, apologies, but I'll just kind of keep rambling on a bit. No, but what- mate, I have no idea. <laughs> I want you
0: to take the lead on this one. <laughs> no worries.
1: I think another thing that's quite interesting is, you know, we sort of established a lot of these beliefs in, in prehistory or in ancient history and how those beliefs in the tree veneration and tree worship were dealt with by the more modern religions. And, again, there's interesting... It's interesting to look at how, for example, polytheism deals with it. You know, it's a polytheistic system of belief is a lot more accommodating to tree worship, to tree gods, because you've already got lots of gods, you know. So it's relatively easy to either you get a new one or you just give responsibility for trees to to one of your existing Mm. uh, gods. So that's kind of okay. The the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, they all had gods with responsibility for trees. And you can find similar examples in, in Hinduism and Sikhism today. So. That's kind of quite easy. The problem really is when you come into the the monotheism and the the one God thing, and you know, as soon as you get one God come along, he, he kind of doesn't really like competition very much. And it's it's interesting to see how different sides of uh, monotheistic, sort of the Abrahamic religions, dealt with stuff. And you can see in the fourth century, the Edict of Milan, Constantine the so the great sort of very late in the day converter to Christianity. Yeah, he. He uh, legalized the religions and cults in his empire, which ultimately benefited uh, Christianity. But it also made sure that pagans and tree worshippers were, were able to enjoy their faith. But later mm. on, that there were some very direct attempts to, to outlaw tree worship altogether. So the Council of Arles, which is in the sort of mid-5th century, there was formal condemnation made of those who, who worshipped trees. In the Council of Tours, in the 567, that was... Anyone who worshipped trees or stones or fountains, they would be driven out of the the Holy Church and and wouldn't be allowed to come back afterwards. So there's a real, you know, the Christians particularly, and sorry to to beat on the Christians, but the Christians particularly really felt threatened by the tree worship. They wanted to try and stamp that out and destroy it. And this led to a whole load of edicts, uh, Theodosius, Theodosian code, in which he talks about, you know, destroying the images these things should be smashed up and destroyed. If you find a sacred tree, you should cut it down. Charmaine did the same thing. Charmaine did the same thing with, uh, with the uh, the Ermansel, the the holy oak, cutting it down, destroying it. Uh, that was one approach taken. There's several great examples all over the world as well of the, the felling of sacred trees to be used as, as pillars in the temples or the churches nearby. That was quite an interesting sign of domination. You go to the local tribe, you fell their amazing big sacred tree, and then you'd use the timber from that tree to build the church, so mm-hmm. all the all the pillars on the church, and that goes back to you know the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, which was sort of 2000, 2100 BC. And Gilgamesh goes off; he he fells the biggest trees in the uh, the, the, the holy forest of, of the cedars and takes them back to Babylon and, and builds his temple out of them. So that's been happening for a very long time, as well. But there is a more conciliatory approach as well. There's a kind of appropriation approach where you've got other individuals people like pope gregory i pope gregory the first i think i like to think was a little bit more a, b- a bit smarter about things because he he was determined to convert the anglo-saxons in england to christianity but he he didn't tell his people to go and smash everything up he said to them look you know if you if there's a shrine there and it's working and people are coming just go and you know put a crucifix up and spray some mm-hmm. holy water around and just tell them it's jesus now and that again is a little bit flippant, but essentially it was saying if they're coming there now, they're going to keep coming there, you know. And we'll start. Well, there's a there's a line uh, there's a line I've got to hear. I think yeah. As as long as these shrines are well built, it is necessary that they should be transformed from the cult of demons to the service of the true God. And as a result of that, I mean, in Britain, all over the place, but in Britain we've got some great examples, particularly in Wales, of uh, very very old, very ancient yew trees, particularly also oaks, but mainly yew trees uh, in churchyards. And, you know, we're, I'm, I've often been asked over the years, why why are yew trees planted in churchyards? And, of course, the, the answer to that is that people are kind of looking at the question the wrong, wrong way around, really. It's why are churchyards built around yew trees is is often <laughs> the case. And that's because these yew trees, these yews were in you know, sacred groves, which were often uh, often based around yews or oak trees. These were sacred places where the, the pagans came to worship, where the Druids performed their rites and so forth. And... When this more conciliatory approach to pagan worship came in, they were just converted into the modern places of worship that we see now, but they didn't go in with this destructive impulse. They just kind of gradually over time incorporated it into their own faith. So different approaches of incorporating the ancient beliefs into what are called the more more modern religions.
0: Mm. So where else do you want to go
1: with this? Well, <laughs> it's, it's all random, isn't it? You can go anywhere. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, ah, uh, oh, you know, there's sacred groves. Sacred groves are awesome. And, you know, we just talked about the fact that sometimes churches, modern places of worship built in sacred groves. But, you know, uh, again, in, in James Frazier, he, he tells stories of the, the sacred groves in, in the German forests of the 1500s, where if the, the peasants would sometimes go in and they'd strip the bark from the trees so they can gather material for lighting their fires. And if caught, the particular punishment that Fraser talks about is uh, that the, the person who'd strip the bark from the tree, he'd be he'd have his stomach cut open,
0: oh. and
1: his and his intestines would be nailed to the tree, and then he'd be forced, he'd be driven around the stem to walk around and around and around the tree until he mm-hmm. completely disemboweled himself. Now, obviously. That's pretty horrific. I'm not suggesting we do that to people who vandalise <laughs> trees now. Although it might it might solve some problems, but you know we probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> but it's interesting in a couple of levels, really. Because on the one hand, it shows just how highly venerated and sacred those trees were. Um, it possibly tells you something about power and the people who owned the trees at the time and, and the, the role of the poor people in that. But also, it's this idea that by by you can almost replace the flesh of the damaged tree with the flesh of the person who damaged it there's mm. kind of an interesting maybe spiritual aspect to that as well and again the sacred groves are all over the place you know you've got some uh, I, I haven't been to see them i can't wait i will do one day but in southern nigeria you've got the osun sacred grove uh, which is the, the abode of the fertility goddess osun and there's the shrines and sanctuaries and statues uh in and around all of the trees around there which is uh, really good also this is a subject for a whole other podcast and i'm not the person to do it but there's also some very very interesting parallels between the often female nature of the deity and the overthrow particular tree worship of the monotheistic male-based religions and to what extent is is the the destruction of tree worship also a patriarchal attempt to destroy the the female and again in terms of books the white goddess mm. by robert graves uh, everyone should go and read the white goddess it's a it's uh, fantastic. But yeah, that's, uh, that's a story for someone else and another day. And then, you know, you've got Japanese Shinto shrines, the whole Shinto thing in Japan. These are, these are sacred groves. And to what extent do we have sacred groves now? You know, cemeteries. We've got trees often planted in cemeteries. Increasingly recently, these sort of natural burials, people having a tree planted instead of a gravestone, maybe having a tree planted on top of you. In Malaysia, many parts of China, you you bury the body and you plant a tree on top of it, and then as the tree grows, the, they're thought to act as messengers between the person who's died and the heavens. And sometimes you hear that the, the rustling of the trees in the wind in a churchyard is, is the dead communicating with their gods and confessing their sins, and it's it's a it's a conversation between you know heaven and earth and and the underworld as communicated by the trees. So that's going back to this axis mundi idea so you can see a lot of the the sacred groves coming through in in cemeteries and then if you go inside again i'm, I'm concentrating on sort of christianity sorry because that's what I, I see most of here but if you go inside a cathedral I'm, I'm in stonehouse in gloucestershire we've got the amazing gloucester cathedral not too far from us here uh if you walk into gloucester cathedral and you look up at those pillars and how those pillars spread at the top to hold up the uh, to hold up the ceiling. That that's a stone forest. It's trees. It's trees and branches mm. holding it up, and it's 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 kind of very clear. You've got other examples in the, the mosque uh, slash cathedral at different times in, in Cordoba. It's the same thing. It's it's trees holding up these sacred vaults, these sacred spaces. And you know, to what extent is that deliberate? Was it simply
0: mm.
1: was it simply doing something that was practical and but also very beautiful, or was there a thought process there to actually try and bring? some of the the sacred grove, the sacred spaces that existed uh, in nature and in the forest to bring that inside this, uh, this new place of worship. Hmm.
0: Well, human beings feel better when they're around trees, and I think that that's a fact that's been um, proven scientifically uh, through a number of studies. So it makes sense that we would want to be around trees during those sort of sacred private moments, and that makes a lot hmm. of sense to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a. I think tying a lot of this together is this a concept, a really interesting concept called uh, numinosity or the, the numinous. And there's a, a Romanian uh, philosopher, Messia um, Eliade, and he writes about the numinous as, as being something sort of wholly other. It's something uh, kind of ethereal and separate. It's totally different. It's not human. It's mm. uh, when when confronted with it, a, a person senses their sort of profound nothingness. So the term that he used. And that might be when you gaze up, a, you know, on a, on a clear night at a star filled sky, or when you're standing underneath a mountain thinking about the heights, or if you're on top of a cliff, or any of these things, these great sort of natural wonders that you experience in a kind of strange way. You can't really explain it. There's that kind of, you know, that sense of otherworldliness. And in our case, this is the same theme as you might have. Stood in a in a forest glade. You know, we've we've all, I mean, if it's been there, you're kind of going through the woods or a forest, and you kind of break out into a glade, and it's all sort of silent, and you're just like, wow, there's something. You know, you feel like the tree spirits have, have just left seconds before you mm-hmm. you got there. You know, or, or if you stand in front of a yew tree, or depending on where you are in the world, you know, a fig or a banyan, and you stand in front of a, a living thing that's that's been alive for a thousand or two thousand years. I mean, that's a that's an incredible spiritual experience.
0: Oh, completely agree. Have you ever had a spiritual experience like that, John? I, I wouldn't
1: describe myself as a particularly spiritual person, but I think just, I mean, like that, you know, like I've described really being in, there's a couple of sites, particularly in Wales, uh, a couple of churchyard sites, actually, where you do have these incredible yew trees. And if you're lucky, you can get there and there'll be no one else around. And you, you kind of it is it's a weird feeling it's partly just a basic thing it's pretty cool to see something that old i mean that is it is the oldest thing that any of us will ever see if we see an ancient tree that's the oldest thing that any of us Mm. the oldest living thing we're ever going to see to be in its presence is kind of cool just to think about all the stuff all the stuff that it's been through all the stuff that it's seen all the other people who've been there you know when you get to these groves yeah you you, it it is it is almost like maybe kind of meditation type experience i know you start thinking, well if this yew tree is 2,000 years old and somebody planted it, then, you know, what were they thinking when they planted it? And who planted (laughs) it? How old was the tree that they got the seed from? Because presumably they'd (laughs) taken the seedlings or or, um, or cuttings from a tree that they, you know, thought was important anyway. So this could be, you know, the the parent of the tree that I'm stood in front of could be 5,000 years old. And you just kind of, it just kind of runs away with you. And I think that, yeah, I think uh, for some people, I think it would be very, very spiritual. I think it's certainly something I find, uh, you know, yeah, meditative, and it's it's it can it can relax you. And as you've said, scientifically, we know now that there is this link between mental health, relaxation, um, and, and trees. We've got shinrin yoku and forest bathing, and all these wonderful things. And I think a lot of us, most of us, hopefully, do instinctively know, you know, if it feels nice to be walking through the woods or through the forest and surrounded by trees and birdsong and animals. That is uh, that is a wonderful thing, and you can see why our ancestors did
0: take these places to be sacred. Mm, I completely agree. Part of the sacredness is to all of the things that live with the trees and the plants. Like it's not just the plants, right? Like these places also are home to animals and all sorts of things, like fungi. All sorts of things. You know, I'm sure people were eating fungi and having all sorts of funny experiences, which probably. I imagine would have added a lot to some of these belief systems and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, sure. I, I think so. I mean, we you know we look at you know woodland now and or an ancient woodland particularly, and we don't just think of it as a series of individual trees. You know, we, we know better now. We thanks to the work of many people over the years, we we know that this is an, an interconnected system. It's an ecosystem. We know that the trees are, uh, are in some cases communicating. We know about mycelium. Uh, your networks of mycelium beneath the ground. We know that they're linked up. You've got all the flora and the fauna in there. It's a whole ecosystem that's all kind of quite delicately balanced. And I guess our ancestors were part of that. You know, we now think ourselves better than nature or above nature or somehow separate. Mm. You know, I always think it's quite funny when when a group of humans get together to talk about nature and what is natural, <laughs> as if it's something as if we can somehow step outside of that mm. and look at nature from the outside. I'm not sure it's entirely possible for us to do that because we are part of nature but certainly to our ancestors if you're looking back thousands and thousands of years they would have been a part of that woodland ecosystem so so, you know to what extent did they understand that it was an ecosystem they probably instinctively understood a lot of these things but they saw themselves as a part of it and at the heart of it rather than us who see ourselves as being outside of it and, and looking at something else and that sort of the arrogance of humanity of well we've kind of destroyed everything but we can save it. And it's like well do you know <laughs> what I, I reckon I reckon it would all be okay. I mean you know it's, we need to sort this problem out. Don't get me wrong, but as I say we need it more than more than it needs us, and we are part mm-hmm. of nature. And um, yeah, I think long after humans uh, have entirely disappeared, there's still going to be <laughs> trees and things like that. Mm-hmm. I should imagine. So it's. A Very interesting thing. And it all comes back again to this disconnection between people and nature. And something I think is something I bang on quite a lot about. But you know, I'm very lucky. I live in the countryside. I, I live close to, to trees and woodlands. Um, many people don't get to get out into, uh, into, I'll say nature, but you know what I mean. And that disconnectivity between, in the same way as often, you know, children who don't realise that they're you know their milk comes from a cow or whatever it is you know this kind of disconnection <laughs> and this breakdown and and when you i think we might have talked about this when we when we last spoke but when you have mm-hmm. complaints from members of the public saying but there's the, the, uh, you've got to cut down the tree outside my house because th- there's birds in it and they're making a noise and i don't like the birds making a noise and you just think ah you know what do you mean what do you mean you don't like the birds mm-hmm. making a noise and it's just there's been that disconnection and you know i think a long 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 time ago we were very very close to trees and to what we now talk about as nature and anything that we can do to get ourselves maybe a little bit closer to that state would probably be good for us and if we can Mm -hmm. achieve that through through appreciating the numinous and through appreciating maybe more of the spiritual aspects of of trees and and greenery then that would be a good thing and another problem we talk about tree values and tree benefits and ecosystem services and other very non-sexy terminology like that and we talk about the benefits of quantifying trees and of course it can be really useful sorry to, we talk about the ben, uh, quantifying the benefits of trees and putting a monetary value on those benefits and in some cases that can be a really really useful tool and i understand why a lot of uh, people would want to do that but i think there's a risk in putting a value on the benefits of trees because there are certain things that trees do for us that you cannot put a monetary value on you you can't you can't put a monetary value on how it feels to stand in front of a 2,000-year-old oak tree. Mm. And that doesn't mean that it's not valuable. It just means you can't put a monetary value on it. And there's a risk that by chasing too much the quantification of ecosystem services that we lose sight of some of the more cultural, spiritual benefits that are are no less important but a bit harder to describe.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And that's not even to mention the ecological benefits. Those are just benefits to us.
1: Exactly. Well. Goodness! That again. That's another. That's a whole that's another podcast, episode but Yeah. Why?
0: <laughs> what should we be so
1: worried about? What trees are doing for us? Should we, should we maybe be thinking a bit more about what what we should be doing for trees? And you know what what what's the experience like for the tree that's taken from the forest and, and stuck on the highway? Should we be thinking more about that? That's another day's conversation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Peter Woolhoffen? yeah, Secret Life of Trees. It's Peter Woolhoffen is his name. He talks uh, about uh, yeah. uh, street trees as being street kids because they're sort of yeah. not, they're not quite as well adjusted he reckons as their um <laughs> rural <laughs> friends and family
1: well that's, that's again this is this is for, for for better experts than me to talk about but i think that's i can see exactly what he's saying there when you, when you when you think about trees as being part of a community in their kind of natural setting or in their more natural setting if they're in a, a hedgerow or a woodland or whatever and, we've said there's these fungal associations. It's not just about the tree, it's about all the stuff around the tree. And if you if you plant a tree in an urban environment, then inevitably you are going to lose some of those connections. And there's some very interesting questions being asked at the moment. You know, To what degree do street trees form a community? How far can these mycelium go under pavements and under roads? Can they still perform the function that they're looking to perform in an urban environment with all of the the harshness and the you know the, the salt being put on the roads and the compaction and all these kind of things. How, to what extent are those trees still forming part of a community in ways that we probably don't understand at the moment? And there's a lot of interesting questions being asked. Mm.
0: Well, it's almost a little bit metaphorical again, isn't it? Like, you know, we've got these urban trees that are all alone out there. They don't have these connections and they're not doing as well as trees that do have connections. I mean, that's so true of human beings as well.
1: Yeah, I think it, it does make perfect sense. Yeah. It, there there are, are many similarities in that. And I, I think the, the comparison to uh, street trees as is, is street kids is, um, is, is there's some sense in that.
0: Is there anything else that you'd like to tell the listeners about?
1: No, I think that's it. You know, we've, we've kind of just scratched the surface in some way. And, and I'm, I certainly wouldn't call myself an expert in any of this. I've just. Uh, I've just read around the subject quite a lot, and I've I've noted some stuff down. But I'd recommend people to get out there and obviously get out there and spend time under trees. Go visit some woodlands. Just go and spend time with a tree, as always, and try and try and find that link between yourself and the tree. and And go read some books. There's some amazing books about this out there uh, that will give a far better description than I have. But no, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting subject, and uh, and hopefully it's a bit of interest to uh, to your listeners.
0: Yeah, I'd like to give a bit of advice to anybody who wants to connect with nature. I think part of the secret for me is don't try too hard. Like, don't try and make it something that it isn't. Like, whatever your experience is out there at the trees, that's what the experience is. It's all good. You know, you don't have to turn it into some magical thing where, you know, all the rainbows appear and you see all the fairies and stuff like that. Like, it already is magical. Just relax, ease your way into it and just feel good. That's my advice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's you know, it all goes back. Alex Shigo, touch trees. Go and touch trees. Yeah. It's a good thing to do. Touch trees.
0: Well, thanks, John. I really appreciate that, mate. This is an awesome episode.
1: Thanks very much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, look forward to, uh, to coming back on another one and discussing some more of these ideas.
0: Yeah, for sure, mate. Looking
1: forward to it. Cheers. Fantastic. Cheers, mate.
0: Make sure you check out the Arboricultural Association's website where you can find a range of resources including their excellent live and pre-recorded webinar events with a range of awesome guests. You can follow the links in the show notes or go to trees.org.uk. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with somebody else that you think would want to hear it.
1: How have you been anyway? All good? It's all going really well, I see. The podcast, well done. Yeah,
0: thank you. Yeah, it's going really well. I mean, we just did a giveaway with Felco, so there's that. I saw, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I was pretty happy. I mean, I reached out to them. I didn't know how that was going to go, but they were really open to the idea and they were really just up for it, you know? So, I mean, what do they have to lose at this point? Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. If you if you, man- if you <laughs> manage to ruin their
1: reputation, then you must be doing something really bad. <laughs> Falco share price drops after a podcast yeah. appearance.
0: <laughs> How much a podcast drops Falco shares? <laughs> <laughs> it's really taken off. It's been
1: great. It's I've been. I've been watching and listening. It's been very impressive. It's been good. Oh, you've been listening. Oh, that's cool. Thanks, man. I, I think well not to all of them, but I think the um, it's. Also, seeing I've seen some of the stuff on Twitter about you know how it's doing well in in the charts and stuff. Is it the Apple charts or something? That yeah. that's pretty. That's pretty cool.
0: Ah, oh, no, man, we got we hit number three in the leisure category, which is like awesome. insane. What's, num- <laughs> know, what's like- numbers? What's numbers two, one, and two? <laughs> one of them was um, Dungeons and Daddies. With a little asterisk next to it, not a BDSM podcast. I was going to say, that sounds, that, don't, don't go
1: Googling Dungeons and Daddies. No. <laughs> <laughs>